Good evening, listeners. It's October 7th, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's just currently after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Kristen Finch. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. <laughs> where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. <laughs> Inspiration dissemination is recorded live. As you can tell. <laughs> and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show or any bloopers are those of the hosts and their guests and do not ne- necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight we are joined by Ross Overecker from Department of Organic Chemistry. Hey, Ross. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, you work in a natural products lab, right? Yeah, I do. So we do natural products chemistry. So we isolate small molecules typically produced from different fungi and bacteria that we harvest from around the world, uh, including organ. Uh, and we isolate the molecules that they produce. And we screen these for different bioactivities, such as antiviral activity, um, antimicrobial, as well as anti-cancer. Activities. And so what's one example of a drug or a treatment that has been isolated from an organism? Well, so everybody knows about penicillin. This drug has been around for a long time. It was actually discovered uh, after World War I, um, and it's really changed the medical field at large. Natural products, really, they make up about 50% of the drugs out there, and this includes natural products uh, on their own as well as, you know, synthetic derivatives of natural products or natural product mimics. So they're really powerful for the medical field. So penicillin, that's something that I've probably taken a few times in my life. Absolutely. I believe most people have probably taken it. And so is that really kind of when natural products chemistry hit the map, I guess, in uh, medical or biomedical chemistry? In the medical field, for sure. Before that, um, you know, there it was more so thought that synthetic compounds were the way to go to find this magical molecule that could treat infections. Um, but really, natural products have been around for much longer than the medical field has been aware of. I mean, it goes back to, I think, 2900 B.C. when ancient cultures were, you know, making extracts of plants and, you know, through teas and different oils and using that to treat infections. They didn't really realize that the activity associated with that was due to a single molecule from that plant, but they were using natural products way back then. So how come natural products are so successful? Why can't we just make our own? Yeah, I mean, it it can be hard to know exactly what we're looking for, I suppose, in a complex biological system. Um, Natural products, like from fungi and bacteria, those microbes are really excellent chemists and you know i don't want to sell out (laughs) the synthetic work by the uh, organic community it's amazing what they do but microorganisms are fantastic they make these crazy structures that take up an enormous amount of chemical space um, and so they can hit different proteins and enzymes and fit into very specific binding pockets Um, as a natural products chemist it's really kind of like 
a game of statistics and finding the right molecule to hit the right protein, you really have to screen a large library of compounds to find the right one. And just to put in a plug, there are two other students from your lab that have come on the show recently. We had Donovan Adpressa on March 18th. You can check that out. You can check that out in the podcast lineup. And then uh, also Paige Mandelier on July 15th because there are lots of natural products, everything from – I think Paige was doing marine stuff. Um, but this just goes to show that natural products are everywhere and we're just kind of still figuring out what things work and why. Absolutely. And, yeah, thanks for plugging them in. I mean, they're both fantastic chemists. Uh, Dono actually graduated recently, so it's actually Dr. Pressa now. Oh, he works out oh there you go. And Paige just passed our oral exam, so oh, congratulations yeah. to her. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we've got a pretty large lab, and so Dr. Lozkin is a fa- fantastic professor in natural products research. Um, and so we're taking a lot of avenues to find interesting bioactivity, and that's really what it's all about for us is finding the bioactivity. Um, so we do all of you know the natural product isolation from the different microbes, uh, characterization using different techniques, as well as all the bioactivity screening. And so we should say that that's Dr. Sandra Lostgren? Lostgren, yeah. Lostgren. And she's in the Department of Organic Chemistry here at Oregon State University. And uh, Ross, I just want to ask, uh, what? so you've told us a little bit about natural products and how that is related to your lab and some of the projects that are probably going on in your lab uh, involve screening these uh, uh, microorganisms for their bioactive compounds but uh what what specifically are you doing in in your lab yeah so we're searching for these um really bioactive compounds and specifically i'm searching for antiviral activity against hiv so hiv as everyone probably knows is you know it really came about in the 1980s and it caused quite the epidemic um, it's a retrovirus, meaning that it contains uh, viral RNA that it has to convert over to DNA before it can make copies of itself. Um, but, you know, we found a lot of ways to treat it, but no way to cure it. And so that's kind of been an issue in the community. You know, um, we constantly need new molecules that target HIV because of its high mutability. Yeah. So can you uh, expand on that a little bit? Like what... Give us a little bit of the in, ins and outs of the in HIV infection, and then what makes HIV so difficult to treat? Sure. Um, so HIV, it's a very fast replicating molecules from start to finish when it enters a host cell um, or a T cell. It takes about 24 hours to replicate itself, um, and that's pretty specific all the time. And so that takes uh, seven steps. First, the virus is going to attach itself to the host cell. And then it's going to enter it through a fusion event um, where it basically unloads its uh, viral enzymes and RNA into the host cell. And then it uses a viral enzyme to turn that RNA into DNA where it can then uh, place it into the cellular machinery in order to make new proteins and new RNA, which is then prepackaged and it buds off of the host cell. So that whole process takes about 24 hours from start to finish. Now, it's been a tricky virus to treat because it's actually highly air-prone. So it actually kind of sucks at replicating. (laughs) Um, When it's turning its RNA to DNA, it's highly air-prone, and it makes a lot of mistakes. Uh, A lot of 
um, microorganisms have proofreading mechanisms to kind of fix those mistakes. We do as well. HIV does not. And this, you know, uh, this actually helps the virus in kind of a weird way. It allows it to create different mutations in different spots. Um, some of those mutations kill the virus, but a very few number of them actually allow it to replicate past uh, and past the drugs that we give it. So it creates a lot of resistance problems. So like within a single individual that is infected with HIV, they could be using a drug treatment that is working very well and is a good benefit to them. But then as the virus uh, changes through this mutability process, it becomes harder and harder or that drug maybe becomes less effective. Certainly. And this is what happened uh, when we initially started trying to treat HIV infection back in the early 1980s. Uh, we would give uh, basically which are um, nucleoside mimics, and it uh, that virus will take those up rather than normal, typical uh, DNA base pairs, um, implement them, and then it kind of fails at replicating. Although the virus can mutate away from that. It will make a change that mutates itself away. Um, and then uh, what we found is that those people were getting sick again and building up resistance within several days. Wow. So we have found some ways around this. Uh, we can give drugs that target different parts of the viral life cycle. So hitting, you know, the fusion event as well as the reverse transcription as well as the integration. Doing that can help, you know. It, then the virus cannot build up uh, resistance at any one of those spots because it'll just die at the next spot. So HIV is definitely not a virus that we have a super great handle on. I'm, I'm picking up from from uh, this a little bit of this conversation in that we constantly need folks like you who are screening dr uh, compounds for their activity against HIV. Yeah, I mean, until we have a vaccine, which we don't at this point, mm -hmm. we are going to need new compounds in order to target HIV at different stages within its life cycle. So you're right now in the drug discovery phase mm -hmm. where you're actively searching and identifying what things actually work. But I wonder if you can give us some background into how long it takes for something to go from drug discovery into implementation. Yeah, it takes a really long time. I mean, like you said, I'm at the very first steps of drug discovery. So we are, you know, collecting molecules and screening. Past here, I mean, it can take several decades and, you know, millions to billions of dollars in order to actually create a drug. And so it's a it's a long endeavor to do that. Um, you know, the stage after me, you know, once I find some a compound that's active, other chemists are probably going to try and change that molecule in order to increase its activity or decrease its cytotoxicity. And then, you know, maybe some company out there, some pharmaceutical company will pick it up and do more screening assays on it. And yeah, Adrian and I were kind of talking about this process a little bit before uh, Ross arrived here at the studio. Uh, but another thing that some people don't think about is like making these drugs available, like finding ways to make large quantities of them, I guess, could be problematic and how to keep them stable before they're uh, used for treatment. And then everything that is involved with uh, starting to, tr to uh, test its activity with mammals and then, you know, a clinical trial for humans. So it could be 
pretty long time. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, we can create, if it is a natural product, often you can just use the organism itself to produce more of uh, the molecule that you want. Oh, yeah. Or there's synthetic methods, but depending on the complexity of the molecule you have, that could take anywhere from 20 to 150 steps to make. And that's just <laughs> not economically plausible in a lot of cases. So are we thinking that folks that were kind of on the cutting edge of uh, this research in chemistry for the application to HIV, kind of in the 80s is probably when they started making these discoveries for the medicines that are used today? Absolutely. Um, you know, it probably, I think the first HIV drug was actually originally supposed to be an anti-cancer compound. Uh, so this is AZT. Um and this was originally produced in, I think, 1968, and then it made it, they figured out that it was active against HIV in the 70s, and then in the 80s, they started using it. Okay, and that's kind of the one that has gone, I guess, out of vogue for these... Uh... Yeah, we don't use that one so much anymore, because we have a lot better drugs these days. Yeah, okay. Sweet. So, I wonder if we can get into the weeds a little bit, and you can describe to us... Uh, you, or you already described to us there was like more or less seven steps that, that the HIV uh, retrovirus has to go through. And you're targeting one specific step uh, and you kind of break the chain and then it's no longer able to replicate anymore. Can you describe to us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I guess I should maybe take a step back here. The molecule, so I've been screening a molecular library, actually a synthetic molecular library, not natural product based. Um and I have identified one compound that is inhibiting HIV. Now, when I originally ran the screen, I didn't necessarily know where it was inhibiting along that viral life cycle. I had to you figure just knew that it out. It was kind of stopping somewhere yeah. in that process. Huh. So, in our lab, I work with um, what are called we call pseudoviruses, um, and so these viruses I produce in lab. Um, and basically you take DNA encoding for different parts of the virus, put them into human cells, and then they spit out HIV viruses. These viruses, though, do not package the DNA that encodes for uh, necessary protein on the viral surface. And so they're only capable of a single round of infection. So we're actually a pretty biosafety level lab in that regard. There's no threat to me. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, I can test the different stages at which the virus is hitting um, because I know exactly how long each one of those stages takes to happen. Mm. So like the viral attachment and um, fusion process, that takes about one hour to complete. So the virus gets into your host cell in about an hour. From there, the reverse transcription where it's taking the viral RNA and turning it into DNA, that takes about five hours so after about six hours it's gone through two of those stages and so on and so forth it takes about 12 hours to integrate the dna into the host cell uh, so what we can do in order to figure out where our compound is inhibiting along this viral life cycle is we can infect cells and then add our compound of interest at different time points along that infection so if i add my compound four hours after infection has started and I don't see any activity with it, then it probably targeted something early along that viral life cycle. Wow. All right, yeah. And then it's a rinse and repeat until you kind of keep narrowing down the time frame of which it's... Yeah, I mean, that's certainly not a fun 
uh, experiment to run it. <laughs> you know, it keeps you in lab uh, redosing your compounds every hour for a long time. But, <laughs> but um, it's noble work, folks, because one day it could lead to the next life-changing medicine. Yeah, it's absolutely effective. So Definitely. All right, well, I want to kind of take a... A flashback, I guess, or uh, rewind a little bit and get into your background. But before we do that, we should say that this is Inspiration Dissemination. If you're just tuning in with us, we're talking to Ross Overacker, and he's from the Department of Organic Chemistry here at Oregon State University, talking to us about natural products chemistry as well as synthetic products chemistry going on right here in Corvallis. So, Ross, a little bit about how you got interested in chemistry. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, getting into chemistry kind of seems like a crazy decision back in the day, um, <laughs> but it all kind of worked out. I mean, I knew from high school that I was fairly interested in chemistry. My chemistry teacher did some pretty cool demos for us. Um, but when I started college, I was pre-dental, actually, of all things. I mean, I think everybody wanted to be a doctor or dentist <laughs> at one point. Um, but I knew I liked chemistry, so that's what I started majoring in. Um, and I got dragged with one of my friends to the WSU Chemistry Club, which I wasn't very excited for at first. <laughs> and WSU is? Uh, Washington State Universities. Yeah, so that's in Pullman, Washington. Uh, I believe we just played them yesterday. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and we lost. Well, it was a good game for the first two and a half quarters. Yeah. So. i got to say, I am still a cougar, so I believe I won. Get out of here right now. <laughs> Just kidding. No, so go on, please. Chemistry club. Yeah, so I thought it was pretty nerdy at first, but I guess I am a bit of a nerd, so I should accept that by now. But they did some really cool uh, chemistry demonstrations where we would – you know, like fill up hydrogen balloons, and blow them up. And obviously that, you know, piqued my interest as much <laughs> as it would anyone else. Pyrotechnics. <laughs> yeah, pyrotechnics. Um, but it was a really cool club and we did a lot of really interesting events, like big uh, demonstrations on mom's weekends where we have a huge crowd uh, come and see us. Um, but when I really got involved is when I told them about a demo that none of them had ever heard of before. And this is the flaming snowball that you've kind of hinted yes. at. Flaming snowball. What is this? <laughs> yeah. So this was a really cool demo that uh, really made my name in the chemistry club. Uh, so this, you make a solution of either calcium or sodium acetate, a super saturated solution. So that basically just turns into like a really salty vinegar solution. Uh, and then you mix it with 100% ethanol. So the acetate is going to be soluble in the water, but it won't be soluble in the ethanol. And so it creates this gel that's basically like, you know, ethanol saturated solid, which is basically a sterno gel that you use for fondue. <laughs> and so this is a super flammable gel. And the cool thing about it is it actually is not too hot. As long as you have your hands with a little bit of water on them, you can pick this up and kind of juggle it around. <laughs> so <laughs> while, while it remains on fire. Yeah, while it remains on fire. And so we would have, uh, um, I remember one time we had a group meeting where we basically made this flaming ball and we just passed it around from handstands. <laughs> now I wouldn't advise doing that. Uh, 
But you were in college and you're all over 18, so who cares, right? Absolutely. (laughs) And that kind of became a mainstay in any demonstration we did. So we did a lot of um, public outreach events, like going to local elementary schools and showing them demos or, you know, uh, kid weekend events on campus. We did a lot of that, as well as, you know, the regulars, like making liquid nitrogen ice cream. We did a lot of that. And so, yeah, I actually ended up uh, being the president of that club for about two years and really just loving chemistry and especially organic chemistry. Sweet. And what particularly about organic chemistry like made you so fascinated or like willing to go on? Because you, I'm sure folks on this campus have heard horror stories about organic chemistry, perhaps in saying that it's very difficult to, you know, understand conceptually a little bit abstract. What drew that to you or made you okay with all of that? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think organic chemistry scares people just because it's unlike anything else you have to learn in school. You know, it doesn't relate to any kind of history or literature hardly even math you're drawing (laughs) hexagons on paper um but that's what excited me about it it's uh it's all a really big puzzle and you have tons and tons of different pieces that fit together in different ways and so that puzzle allows you to predict things that you don't really know so you can predict reactions just based on you know how these pieces fit together and so i always thought that was really cool and when you became, the, or I guess after you were the president of the chemistry club, you were really involved with the department at, you know, a kind of overarching level. So you also started TAing some upper division classes during your undergrad. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, there was an organic spectroscopy class. And so this class is where we determine the structure. We have to determine the structure of an unknown compound. And so you spend the whole semester, you know, trying to figure out what these structures are. And so I took that class pretty early on and did pretty well on it. And so the next year, they actually asked me to TA it. Um, And so that was a really fun event because I took that class early. So I was actually the TA for the people who were in my same year. so, (laughs) So that made it kind of fun. Uh, yeah. And so I've done a lot more TAing since I've been at Oregon State. Um, so maybe a lot of people know me as their <laughs> organic TA. Right, right. So uh, just a little bit about that. I'm wondering, I'm seeing like the pattern forming, you know, you're you're really interested in chemistry. You've got a knack for organic and then you have some experience of TAing under your belt. So was there another experience that kind of led you to graduate school or was it just what we know about so far? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was definitely my love for chemistry. Um, you know, teaching helped. Let's see. I also did a lot of uh, research in my undergrad. So that was pretty eye opening and, you know, what goes on in a chemistry lab. And so there I was doing synthetic chemistry. So I was building molecules. Um, and that was really exciting. You know, you learn it on paper and then to actually go through with it is a whole nother thing. Um, and, you know, doing synthetic chemistry is kind of like you would imagine, like something like off Breaking Bad where you got all these flasks sitting all around and you're mixing things together. So you feel pretty mad scientist doing it. And it's a good time. Yeah. So did you want to become or did you want to go to graduate school so you can call yourself even a matter scientist? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing better than putting on a lab coat and yeah. looking crazy. And so I'm going to ask the the maybe scariest question that we've asked so uh, far, which is okay. what does the 
what does the future hold for you or what what kind of what do you want the future to that hold is a for mean you, question sorry <laughs> uh, yeah i mean you know i'm i haven't graduated yet but i have passed my oral exams and everything so hopefully that's coming up pretty soon um, once i finish this project next i would love to do you know a postdoc um i really would love to travel abroad but you know i'm keeping my options open absolutely um I have spent some time working, doing an internship during grad school, actually, at a company called Thermo Fisher down in Eugene. And there I did organic uh, synthesis as well. So not quite the same as my research now, but I can see myself working in pharmaceutical development. And do you kind of think that uh, your path will lead you back to an academic position where you're being a professor? I don't necessarily see that happening right away, but... We'll see. Yeah, definitely a big academic landscape type of variable with that. Absolutely. But yeah, definitely <laughs> you, big plans. You have to let the flaming snowball die down to see where the pieces fall. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So we're coming to the end of our show, and we have two traditions that we always ask our guests. The first is we ask for advice. So what advice do you have, and to whom is it to? All right. Well, I do have some advice. Um, who is it to? It's almost to myself <laughs> um, as well as everyone else. Uh, find a way to remember everyone's name that you meet. I think it's absolutely instrumental uh, when you're trying to network to know people's names at your meeting and not have to you know, ask them multiple times. And that's definitely advice for myself and something I can get better <laughs> on. And I'm sure pretty much everybody can. I guess especially at research conferences as well, when the first time you're meeting colleagues, um, you know, you, you see their their name on paper and you finally get to meet them in person. Yeah. Um, and then there are graduate students and so on and so on. It's the f- communities of science, I think, for most fields tend to be fairly small. So you'll see them at the next conference and the next conference and they could be future collaborators as absolutely well. so in that sense you know make business cards and take those Man, so that's for the i scientists. really need to make business cards yeah. i've been telling myself that for like two years now <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. when somebody comes up and asks you for your business card and you don't have one it's kind of bummer all right ross i'm gonna take that advice i'm gonna make that on my to-do list yeah. this week Good. yes get some with the new oregon state logo on them Maybe, that's why i was waiting i, yeah. I wanted the, the new the new benny logo <laughs> yeah there you go. well and then our second piece of tradition is that we ask you to uh request a song that we'll play at the end of this interview as kind of your stamp in our in our playlist so what song have you selected and uh why yeah, so we're going to be playing uh, How You Like Me Now by The Heavy. Um, why did I pick it? I'm, it's a really cool song. Uh, <laughs> I really enjoy it. But, you know, I guess just, you know, be unapologetically yourself. Nice. Very good advice. Another good advice part. That is. All right. So this has been Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR Corvallis. We're on every Sunday at 7 p.m. talking to different graduate students. And uh, we were just talking to Ross from Department of Organic Chemistry. And so here is the song that he picked, How You Like Me Now by The Heavy. You heard it on KBVR Corvallis.